0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogey. Dr. Brogey is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer
1: your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to The Bible Line, and if you are a first-time listener for the next hour here at WAGB.net or at 88.7 FM, however you may be listening, We will be taking people's questions. You can call in directly. Our toll-free 877 number is simply the call letters, WAGP, 877-WAGP, 980. Or you can use the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that's simply 525-1859. When you call, we will take your question either live on the air, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate it. Uh, to our volunteer, and they'll shoot it here into the studio. Well, with that said, you can also email us, and we get a ton of email questions, and it takes us a while to answer them. So many come in from different states and different countries sometimes. And, but when your question is answered, you are shot in email so you can listen to the audio file. And that email address is TBL, it stands for the Bible line, at wagp.net. Well, Walter, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning.
0: All right. Yes, sir. Our first question comes from Lawrence out of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He asks: in your sermon titled A Glimpse of Heaven, you mentioned a book that you wrote proving the Bible is true, accurate, and can be trusted because of prophecy. I'd love to buy a copy, but I cannot find it on your website. My question is, what is the title and how can I order a copy? Thank you very much for your time and attention.
1: I suppose, Walter, we should put that on our website. Yes, and, sir. Uh, it's available and uh, through Amazon. I don't make money on books. Uh, my heart is just for God's Word to go out there however we can. Uh, in fact, we give that to everyone who comes to meet the pastor. It's a meeting we have here uh, locally, and we Zoom it for people on our other two campuses. Uh, but it's a meeting where people can ask questions. But... Um, Ken Ham did a three-volume apologetic series, and I wrote several chapters in those three volumes, and one of them is entitled How to Prove the Bible is True. And we've taken that one chapter out and just put it in a little booklet form. And if you go to Amazon and just type in Carl Brogy, How to Prove the Bible is True, uh, it will bring it up. I don't again, I don't make any money on it. You know, when you sign up and do a book through Amazon, you set the price. And I said, what's the lowest price we can set it at? And that's what it's at. Uh, The only one who makes money is Amazon. But we're glad to provide that for you. If you can't afford it, you can just write us at Search the Scriptures. If you go to Search the Scriptures and there's a drop-down menu, Ask Dr. Berge a Question, you send us an address. We'll mail it to you for free if you can't find it. But it's a big help if you want to buy it yourself. All right, good question. By the way, in that booklet, what I do is I walk through How do we know the Bible is the only book God ever wrote? He did not inspire or write the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Upanishads or the Vedas or any other religious book you can think of. The only book God wrote was the 66 books of the Holy Bible. And I go through various evidences to prove that you can, with your mind, verify that. So when we talk about becoming Christians... We're not taking some blind leap of faith and setting our brain on a shelf, and we're trying to work ourselves up emotionally to something that we're not certain is true. No, God has shown Himself to be faithful and trustworthy, and based on that, He asks you to take a step of faith. The Bible just being read is enough evidence, and it's really all you would need if you meet God someday. You won't be able to say, well, I never read a book on apologetics that showed the Bible is the only book you wrote. God would say, no, my word is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword, and that's all you needed, and it's true. But there are evidences within the Scripture that show its unique inspiration, and a Christian should know how to respond to that, because two very, very big questions that... We uh, are confronted with as believers is how do we know Jesus is the only way to God? You know, and with that, a very subset of a question is what about those who've never heard the name of Jesus? And I wrote a booklet on that about the state of the unevangelized. And then the second question is how do we know the Bible is true? You know, you'll hear ignorant arguments and statements like, well, it's been translated so many times you can't trust it and it's all watered down and this and that. And Um, No, there are incredible evidences. So becoming a Christian is not taking a step into the dark. It's stepping into the light, and uh, that's something we should embrace. Let's go to the next question. Great question. I appreciate that. That was out of Pennsylvania, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Yes, sir,
0: out of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I believe we have a live caller. Uh, Let me see if we can get him here, Pastor Carl. Good morning, caller. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead with your question.
1: Good morning. That first question was a perfect lead into my question. Um, I've been having a discussion back and forth with someone who says that my Bible is not complete because it does not contain the Apocrypha. Now I know that's not true. but what I want to do is I would like to know where I can access information and read the books that are in there that don't belong in there and, um, and how many books are their total in the Apocrypha? Like, and how did they choose how many to put in their Bible? And I know you know who I'm referring to. Well, it's, um, it's a good question, and uh, let me see if I can respond to it. What I would direct you to first would be my course on bibliology. Uh, so I have a course in our Institute of Biblical Studies, and one of the cl- classes is called Bibliology. And uh, I will often say it's not for the faint-hearted. I believe it is our single longest course. There's over 500 pages in structured notes And one of the sections on bibliology concerns canonicity. So even if you didn't want to listen to the whole course, which I think I taught over like 20 Wednesday nights, you could simply listen to uh, the section on canonicity. Why do we have 66 books? Why do the Roman Catholics uh, include the Apocrypha? And I might even add the Orthodox Church has a few more than the Roman Catholics do. And sometimes they kind of um, bury them craftily, and I think dishonestly. For instance, in your Bible, if you open the book of Daniel, you'd find there's 12 chapters. If you opened up the Roman Catholic Bible, you'd say, oh, there's 14 chapters. I didn't know Daniel had 14 chapters. He didn't. And by the way, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't have 14 chapters in them. Of course, there were no chapter and verse divisions, when those scrolls were written, that's added almost a thousand years after the Bible was completed. But the book of Daniel and the Dead Sea Scrolls ends where your Bible ends. And so uh, the apocryphal books, there's two groups of books. There's the apocrypha and then there's the pseudepigrapha. Let me respond to both. The apocryphal books are those books that are written between the last author and, of the Old Testament, whom we would put as Malachi, and he really falls at the end of the age. And the first writer of the New Testament, some would debate whether Mark's gospel was preeminent over Matthew. I would argue for Athean authorship, and it actually falls in chronologically as they were written, but it doesn't make any difference. But between Malachi and Matthew, there's a 400 year period. We often call it the years of silence, when there was no prophet in Israel. In either case, and by the way, there were, there were signs that marked the man as a prophet. So we know there were no prophets in Israel. And again, I cover that in my course on canonicity. But in either case, um, w- during that 400-year period, there were some books that were written that are um, give some insight and flavor as to what happened in Israel's history. And some important books that were written. For instance, um, the scripture in Daniel chapter 11 prophesies some events that will happen during what we would refer to as the intertestament period. And so you have historical records, not just by Jewish people, but also by secularists that actually demonstrate the prophecy that was going to be fulfilled during the intertestament period. And that's significant. And again, the critics would say, well, Daniel is so incredibly precise in terms of its prophecy that it was a second century AD writing. And of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls smothered that, totally obliterated that. Um, Not to mention that Many of the prophecies that Daniel wrote happened in his era as well. But again, we cover this in the course on canonicity. So they're useful books. In fact, I should say in the very first edition of the 1611, in the 1611 King James Version, they included the apocryphal books, and they put them between the Old and the New Testaments. And so if you read the preface, and some of you maybe bought the 400th, year edition of the King James Bible. And it was really a great um, edition they put out because they made it readable because a lot of the letters in 1611, the way we formed English letters are very different from the way we form them today. So it made it more readable. But you also got to read the preface, the original preface of the 1611. And of course, they wrote in that preface, among other things, that they were in the process of learning Hebrew and Greek, and some of them did not consider themselves as scholarly as maybe others who would follow. Why? Because the Bible had been neglected for so long, and the only translation the church used for nearly a thousand years was the Latin Bible. And so they admitted in the 1611 that there needed to be some refinement. In fact, the 1611b came out, Uh, As soon as the 1611 was printed, they continued translating, and they made some refinements. In in fact, when someone says, today I'm reading the 1611 Bible, they're actually reading the 1638. And and so there were some revisions that were happening. But in the first edition, they included the apocryphal books. And then the Roman Catholics came back and made fun of them and said, well, you see, you obviously think these are important enough to include them. I guess you're... uh, submitting to our teaching that they're inspired. And so they later remove them. Though in the preface they clearly stated, we do not believe these books are inspired, but they shed a lot of light on what took place during this period leading up to the time of Christ. And so in that way they're useful. But for instance, there's a book called Maccabees and we divide it into two halves, first and second Maccabees. And in 2nd Maccabees it talks about prayer for the dead. Again, that would go against what God wrote through other prophets in the Old Testament because once a person dies, their fate is sealed. But that's a convenient book for Roman Catholics to use in order to build the doctrine of purgatory. And so on November 1st of every year, it's called All Saints Day in the Roman Catholic Church, they pray for dead people and they would baptize that view using an apocryphal book. So how do we know the Apocryphal books are not inspired? I'm just going to give you the short answer, but again, this is a huge, huge question, which I cover in great depth and detail in the course on Bibliology, the section on Canonicity. Um, the, The short answer, very simple, is that when you come into the New Testament, Jesus never quotes the Apocrypha. The apostles never quote the Apocrypha. Now, some would say, oh, wait a minute, over here in the book of Jude, no. What came first, the chicken or the egg? There were some things that were part of oral tradition that a few apocryphal books wrote down, but they were part of oral tradition, and when the Lord had a writer like Jude quote an oral tradition, then he put his stamp of approval on it that this is an oral tradition that can be believed, and you can embrace it as true. And so... Again, if those books were inspired, why doesn't God, through his apostles and the Lord Jesus himself, quote them? They don't because they don't view them as inspired. Then there's what we call pseudepigrapha. Grafe is to write pseudo, false, so we call them the false writings. And these are books that are written after the canon of Scripture is completed. Now, Catholics and Orthodox don't include them. Uh, They just include the Apocryphal books and Again, even the Orthodox Church, like if you had an, uh, a Bible that the Orthodox Church would, was reading, they wouldn't have 150 psalms, they'd have 151 psalms. Uh, and again, um, because of their view of the Inter Testament books, and it's, a, it's an errant view. Uh, and even when you read those books, it's apparent that they were not part of the uh, life-changing writings of Scripture. A book that's canonical had to have been written by a prophet of God, someone that God designated. Moses underscores that in Deuteronomy 18. A book that is to be included in the canon would be confirmed by an act of God. Since there were you know, true prophets and false prophets, Jesus brings this out in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sometimes there would be confirmation of a true prophet through the exercise of miracles. You see that through Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and the apostles. They were authenticated as God's men, like 2 Corinthians 12.12 indicates, by the miracles that they did. Uh, A book that is canonical would always coincide with previous revelation. In other words, God doesn't contradict himself. God doesn't tell us in the Old Testament, that it's senseless to pray for the dead. God doesn't tell us in the New Testament that we should pray for the dead because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you're a believer. It's to be present in Hades, which is the first expression of hell, ultimately to turn into the lake of fire. Why? Because he doesn't tell us to do that because he's already made it clear. And so when you come to these inner testament books, they contradict previous revelation that God gave in the Old Testament, and they contradict revelation that God would give later. Not to mention, a canonical book was life-changing. It's living, and it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. When you read that, uh, those Old Testament, those Intertestament books, they don't have the same thing. So on and on I could go, but um, again, so we don't embrace the gospel according to St. Bartholomew. We don't read the gospel according to St. Thomas. Why? Because these come, you know, 100-plus years after uh, the—in about 125, 130 A.D., long after the New Testament canon had been closed and shut. So I hope that helps. That's the short answer, but your question is very, very important. And so I would suggest if you're going to respond to your friend intelligently— that you listen to that section on the course on canonicity. Let's go to the next question. alright
0: two five one eight five nine. We have another live caller. Good morning, Alberto. You are live with Pastor Carl. Yes, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, yeah, good morning. Um, um,
1: sir, I'm calling. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of uh, God's goodness. When I accepted Christ, He, I'm a victim because he transmitted me. I'm sitting here with with Christ Jesus, and his love and kindness has bestowed upon me. So what can I do about this if I'm a victim of all this goodness? Well, I wouldn't use the word uh, victim. I would say i um, blessed by God's goodness. I'm a recipient. Victim usually t- typically has this negative connotation, like you are helpless in uh, your— in, in a, in a, and if you're using the term Alberto in that way to say that you had no uh, participation in your decision— to receive Christ, uh, then indeed, I suppose you might use the word, but again, it usually has a negative connotation. But um, biblically speaking, we're not victims. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and it doesn't happen independently of our free will. Uh, the Scripture teaches that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the saved, the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non elect are the whosoever wants. Uh, Certainly, God can write that he chose us, he elected us before the foundations of the world based on the foreknowledge of God, and the word foreknowledge is um, a noun and a verb that speaks of prior knowledge, depending on its use, and so God in his prior knowledge, pro means before we get our word pre, gnosko means to know, and so according to the foreknowledge of God, He chose us and uh, worked in our life and brought us to himself. That's what Peter says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Uh, We could say who are elect. How? According to the foreknowledge of God. So, again, God's... uh, Uh, prognosis, so to speak, his foreknowledge, um, is based on what he knew we would do. And on that basis, he worked. It says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, there's a Greek word again, prognosco, be on your guard. So there he's writing to them, and he says, look, in light of what I've just instructed you, knowing this beforehand, it's the same verb. It means prior knowledge. Um, Paul in the book of Acts and the reason I'm even bringing up these extra passages is simply because people want to redefine foreknowledge, and they can't do it biblically, where they come up with a definition that is really nonsense. Paul is before Agrippa, so then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation in at Jerusalem, since they have known about me. There it is. Uh who beforehand knew, it's the Greek word prognosko, they've known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify. And so they had this prior knowledge, and Paul calls them on the mat, look, they, they knew about my past, let them come and speak. This isn't anything, you know, that I'm making up. And so God's election is based on his foreknowledge. Now, I would underscore, unlike the Arminian, who would say that you have a spark left within you, that you can come to the Lord on your own. You can't. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead men can't respond. So unless the Father draws you, no one can come to the Father. But God works in the hearts of an unbelieving world through either general revelation or specific revelation or through the ministry of God's Spirit. And then you have to choose. And so when you choose, you become a believer and you're not a, a victim. You're a blessed person. Good question. Let's go to the next.
0: Our next question comes uh, out of Beaufort, South Carolina and is anonymous. They ask, in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25, this refers to the new heaven and the new earth. I understand that there is a difference between the millennium reign and the eternal kingdom, but I was confused in regards to what this passage was referring to. Also, I would appreciate if you uh, would touch on whether there will be new offspring and death in the Millennium Reign.
1: All right, good question. So um, it's easy to um, take uh, Isaiah 65 and Revelation uh, 21 and conflate the two passages when they're speaking about two specific different topics. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. He is speaking not of the new heavens and a new earth as John does in Revelation 21, 1, where he sees the old heaven and the old earth flee and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He's speaking here of the regenerated earth when Peter, like in Acts 3, speaks of the coming kingdom. He speaks of this time of uh, the reign of Messiah when God, to use Jesus's words, will regenerate the earth. And with the earth, he is somehow regenerating the heavens. But clearly, this is different, and we know that for several reasons. Uh, again, at the uh, coming of Christ, after He rules for a thousand years upon the earth, this current earth that we are on, uh, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, is going to be destroyed. And so, Scripture reminds us: know this first of all that in the last days, mockers will come, and He describes what will happen. and and then he reminds us that although God once destroyed the world through a flood, he said, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so he reminds us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So this current heaven and earth, is going to be destroyed. And he says, we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. The elements will melt with intense heat. Sometimes you will have Christians, again, they conflate these two passages and they think that, oh, you know, God's just going to take the earth that we're on and uh, he's going to fix it up. No, he's going to destroy it. Uh, the scripture says in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So, again, even this um, judgment that takes place right prior to it, we call the great white pr- throne judgment, it takes place at a time when uh, heaven and earth I- is gone, and so it's somewhere in outer space right before God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So clearly we're, we're talking about two different things, but it's new in a very real sense and that it's regenerated, and there are characteristics of it that are very different from the earth that we're on. And so, for instance, in continuing reading here, not only will there be no more heartache in Jerusalem, which has been their history, no more weeping, no more crying, the next verse says, no longer will there be in it an infant who does not live but a few days, or an old man, who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of one hundred, and the one who does not reach the age of one hundred will thought to be will thought to be accursed. And so again, he he's describing here uh, a, a very very different time frame in human history. I think it would parallel the days before the great flood, when based on the way the heavens and the earth were, people lived a long period of time. I cover this to some extent in my series on the Genesis, on the book of beginnings. And there in that book, we refer to the great flood. And of course, even science, sometimes in mocking Christians, will say, if every single cloud on the earth rained at once, then uh, at most there'd be 18 inches of water, 18 to 20 inches of water across the planet. How can you say that the highest mountain in the world was 18 inches underwater? For that's what the Genesis account teaches. Because God opens up the waters in the depths below, you know, whether you know it or not. You know, we're, we're sitting on lakes and rivers uh, underneath our feet. You know, they came and dug a new well in my yard recently and they had to go down 220 feet. And they hit one of those great aquifers, an underground lake, to suck up the water so I can have fresh, pure Unchemicalled water to drink from. And, and God also brought water from above. And so it's often argued that there was a canopy around the earth because the scripture teaches that Moses never felt a raindrop, that God watered the earth with a mist from below. And so if uh, John Whitcomb in his book, The Genesis Flood is Correct, and he was a great scientist who taught at Stanford University, he said we had a terrarium effect where a mist from below would come up and water the whole earth and that's part of the reason why people live for so long because that protective covering was uh there but now it's gone and so again he's describing that there'll be death in the millennium nonetheless and if you only live to be a hundred for some reason you're considered to be cursed now you know i might joke to a 100 year old person now who is this young lady who turned a hundred today Well, if we're living during the millennium, that would not be a joke because a young man would be considered to be a hundred unless he's cursed. Why? Because God will be ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. Um, Going on further here in Isaiah, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their own hands. Again, he's describing this time, not just a biological transformation, but a time of social transformation. Why? Because Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth. So if you build a house, no one's going to rip you off. If you plant a vineyard, no one's going to steal from it. Um, I had a friend who uh, had a big watermelon farm and. It was a constant fight where these people would drive up in their cars. They'd open their trunk. They'd pick 10 watermelons, throw them in the trunk, and take off. No such thing during the time of Christ's reign on the earth. He goes on to say they will not labor in vain or or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. So again, in the eternal state, Um, people neither marry nor are given in marriage in the eternal state there is death no more the revelation says there's no more death Um, and so there's death here in the millennium under the sovereignty of the lord and there are people having babies in the millennium and this argues again for a pre-tribulational rapture because uh, those who are alive during the time of the great tribulation who survive it who enter into the millennium in their natural bodies will be able to procreate and they will be able to have a lot of children and their children can potentially live all thousand years why will christ have to rule with a, a rod of iron for the simple reason that there will be people born who will have to make a decision for christ and not everyone will decide for him and so at the end of the millennial reign where Satan has been bound for a thousand years and he's given freedom to be loosed, he'll be able to tempt people to go against Christ. You'd say, how could they possibly go against Jesus? Here he is ruling on the earth, sovereignty, For the same reason they rejected him when he was here the first time. So you want to be careful here. And I, and I hate to say it, and I don't want to criticize some of these books that have been written on heaven, but some of the books written on heaven are describing the millennial reign and what we will do during the millennial reign, and it's not a description. Now, there are certainly similarities. He'll go on there in Isaiah 65 to say, um, "I." it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food, they will do no evil or harm on my holy mountain. He's ruling and reigning with a a rod of iron. So it's not until the end of the millennium that they are able to do some things when Satan comes and tempts them one final time. This is a very different age. Don't confuse it with heaven. Certainly there are parallels, but it's a very different age. And You might want to listen to a sermon I recently did. I actually did two sermons recently on the millennium. Uh, I'm doing a series um, called God's Prophetic Schedule, and I did two messages on the Millennium. And in the second of those two messages, if you go to communitybiblechurch.us and just click on the green icon on the homepage, God's Prophetic Schedule, you will see 28 messages I've been doing. I think I have two more left in this series. But you can click on that and listen to the last two. And I give, among other reasons, six reasons for the millennium. Why doesn't the Lord just come back, take us all to heaven, and end it? Well, there's six reasons why, and I cover that in that sermon. I think that would be helpful to you. Okay, let's go to the next question. All right,
0: eight four three five two five one eight five nine. Again, that's eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question for today's Bible line, our next question is from Michael B. out of Massachusetts. He asked, in a in the Bible, in a Bible study with my pastor last week, he mentioned tithing was more like twenty-three point five percent in the Old Testament. My question is, what does the New Testament say regarding tithing, and what guidance should I take from the entire from the entire Bible on my tithing? My pastor explained, as I see it, that there were three tithes in the Old Testament: one, the, Le- the Levitical or sacred tithe; two, the tithe of the feast; and three, the tithe uh, for the poor. Thoughts.
1: Okay, so um, again, I'm going to direct you to one of my courses in the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's called Finances God's Way, and if you go to section two of that course, I deal with this subject. Was the Old Testament tied 10%, 13%, or 23%? Well, in the latter half of the 20th century, for the first time in the history of the Church, Some tried to say that tithing a tenth of your income didn't apply to the church, but it only applied to Old Testament saints. In fact, um, they would try to argue, I think maybe as a point of discouragement, that they didn't give 10%. Some would argue they gave 13%, and some would say that they gave as much as 23%. And so what are they doing? Well, I think among other things, they're discouraging God's people from tithing by pointing out there was not one tithe, but three. And uh, again, they would say in light of that, it's near impossible to give 23% of your income today. Well, uh, let me just say that Malachi says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you, the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The word tithe, by the way, in both Hebrew and in Greek, And if you knew neither of those languages, you could figure it out just by reading Hebrews 7, is a mathematical term that means a tenth. But it is true there were some other tithes, and it it was not an additional tithe. It was a tithe for those who lived outside of the city of Jerusalem that was to be given to the Levites. And the Levites lived throughout the land um, to teach the Word of God. And so in Deuteronomy 14... You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he has chosen to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, and so on and so forth, so that you may learn to fear the Lord. And, of course, as you read this scripture, you discover that God is dictating, because there was a meal that was associated with it, that if you didn't live in and around Jerusalem... You ministered directly to the Levites who taught you the word of God. Why? Because the worker's worthy of his wages. And so I would say in addition, when God gives instructions to the Levites in Numbers 18, he says to the sons of Levi, I've given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform for the tent of meeting. And then God will go on to say that they are to give a tithe of the tithe. Why? Because God never calls people in leadership to do less than what he calls the people to do. Now, it is true that there was a third, every third year, um, in addition to providing for the Levite, you also helped to provide for the stranger and the orphan and the widow. And so Deuteronomy 14 goes on to say, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year, and you shall deposit it in your town, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among me. And the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied. It wasn't an additional tithe. It was simply a redistribution of how the tithe was to be given in that year. But let's just say for the sake of argument uh, that your pastor's conclusion, I don't want to criticize your pastor. There, there are some godly men who take a different position, but they are certainly not agreeing with the tenor of church history. Not that church history is always 100% right, but as a general principle, if it's new, it's not true. And so really the idea that tithing shouldn't be done doesn't really begin to take root into the American church until about the 1920s. But even if one gives the benefit of the doubt and they calculate the tithe at either 13% or 23% 23 instead of 10%, I think if you look at the overall structure of Scripture, you would see that the tithe, even for today, is 10%. How do I know? Well, remember, before Moses came on the scene, tithing was practiced. You can read in Genesis 14 and verse 20, Abraham gave a tenth. Of all that he had to Melchizedek. And by the way, this is highlighted in Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. Tithe means tenth. And of course, in the book of Hebrews, some would say, well, that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't think so, but I do certainly think at the least it was a type of Christ, what Melchizedek was. He was a prophecy of what Jesus was going to do and what Jesus would be like in terms of his office as both priest and king. And uh, nonetheless, they were giving a tenth. And then uh, through Jacob, he continued to give a tenth. So 400 years before the law was ever giving, people were tithing. Why? Because it was not part of God's ceremonial law, but it was part of God's moral law. And by the way, I think you need to ask, why did Abraham give 10%? Why didn't he give 2% or 33% or 100%? Because Abraham responded to what God had showed him. He was a man who walked by faith. He's described as the father of the faithful, the father of all who believe, the friend of God. And as God's friend, God had given him special revelation. Remember, the first verse of Scripture was not penned until Moses comes some 400 years after Abraham. But faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so he responded to what God had revealed, as did Jacob, where Jacob gave a tenth of all that he had. And when you come to the New Testament, God reaffirms the principle of tithing through Jesus. Jesus said in, in, in a number of passages, like Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, those are spices in your garden, but you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things that you should have done without neglecting the others. Christ's point is is there's no competition between justice and mercy and faithfulness and tithing because they're all part of what God calls us to do. And so tithing is not contrary to the principle of grace uh, if anything, it's a motive, it, it's undergirded by grace. You know, people say, well, we believe in grace giving. What does that mean? You know, uh, if, if you don't have a, a starting place, what does it mean? Well, I don't know. This Sunday, I feel like giving, I don't know, 1%. Oh, this Sunday, I really feel generous. I'll give 5%. Oh, God had a standard of giving. It was the starting point. And so he speaks in Malachi of those who robbed him of both tithes and offerings. In other words, it's not like it's a 10%, 100%, 90% relationship. It's all God's. And someday in heaven, we will give an account for 100% of all that God has entrusted to us on every level beyond money. And so it's all God's. And so we are to be sensitive to the spirit of God. And so it's not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. And, of course, as you read the New Testament, Christ never revises the law downward. He always revises it upward. He said, you've heard the ancients say you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to everyone who's angry with his brother is guilty of murder. Um, Or he said, you've heard it's committed, you shall not commit murder. But I say, who's ever angry with his brother has committed murder. He'll go on to say, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust in his heart has committed adultery. So he never revises the law downward. He always brings it upward. And just like it was a sin to rob God by not tithing in Malachi's day or Moses' day or Nehemiah's day or in Abraham's day, um, Jesus didn't, in essence, teach, well, in the Old Testament, it said not to steal, but I say you can steal a little. No, tithing is the starting place. And what I've discovered is a general principle is that people who teach that tithing is not for today are people who don't tithe. They're just people who don't tithe. And, you know, if you go to a pastor and say, well, you don't teach tithing, can I ask you a personal question? You don't have to answer it, but can I ask it to you? Do you give at least 10% of the monies that God puts in your hand? Do you tithe to this church? Do you give at least 10%? If I were to get your W-2 forms, could you show me that you give at least 10%? And what you'll discover is that the answer for most of these people is no, and that's why they teach against tithing. They are putting their experience over the authority of Scripture. And occasionally, I'll hear someone even on WAGP who say, "If you're in a financial, you know, pinch, you shouldn't tithe," and that that's that's really not good counsel. That's bad counsel. Uh, Jesus made it very clear that. You know, we're not to teach people to go against the law. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So listen, Abraham commences tithing. Jacob continues tithing. Moses commands tithing. Jesus commends tithing. You shouldn't cancel tithing. You should do what God's Word said. And one of the reasons so many Christians have financial difficulties is because they don't obey what God says. And it really changes your whole financial picture when you start with the tithe because it causes you to stop, to slow down. You're acknowledging that this is all God's money. It's not my money. And um, two, it's not like it's a silver bullet that if I just give 10%, I'm going to see financial blessing if we violate other commands of Scripture in terms of giving, in terms of saving, in terms of investing, in terms of debt. They all corporately function together. And so, again, this notebook, it's about 120 pages long on my course on financial freedom, God's way. I talk about, you know, debt-free living. I talk about, uh, you know, how to pay off your house in 15 to 18 years instead of 30 years. And all debt is not forbidden. So what is forbidden? What is allowed? What is not allowed? Some debt is spoken against very sternly in scripture. Most Christians haven't thought about it. They're just doing what the culture said, spoke to someone recently in the office and young Marine, and he had $28,000 in credit card debt. And he said, but you know, I talked to my friends and I guess I'm kind of average. A lot of them even have more. And look, this is the mess that American families and American Christian families are in because they've ignored God's principles on giving. So I'm not here to rank on your pastor, but I would say he's wrong. And uh, I think you need to listen to my course where I walk through all of these verses carefully, contextually, that it was not 13% or 23%, but 10%. And that's the starting place. Because again, it's not simply an issue of percentages, it's an issue of the heart. Good question. Let's go to the next.
0: All right, our next question comes uh, from Bert out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He writes, Dr. Brogy, expounding on your wonderful Resurrection Sunday message, do you think that one possible explanation of why Jesus wasn't immediately recognizable in his first appearance after his resurrection was that he still had many scars from the horrific punishment he endured just before the crucifixion? We know his resurrected body had uh, nail scars. Then we know in Revelation he looks differently than he did before his ascension into heaven.
1: Well, it's an interesting observation, but I would say no. I don't think that's the reason, Uh, simply because when we are resurrected, the Scripture reminds us that there's a parallel between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. God is going to have as a forever testimony the nail scars in the hands and feet of Christ as a testimony for all time of what Jesus did and why we're even in heaven. Paul will say, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power with which we Himself which he has even to subject all things to himself. So I don't think when they saw Jesus, there were still cuts on his face or arms, and he was trying to hide those until it healed because he's in his forever glorified body. And uh, God in his providence and as an eternal testimony has allowed the nail scars and the other scars in his feet to be retained, and even the scar on his side. So I don't think it's that at all, just because when you get your resurrection body, if you're paralyzed, you're going to have a body like Christ. You're going to be able to walk. Uh, If you had a deformed arm, it won't be deformed. And so there's a parallel, and John teaches the same in other passages. So uh, I just think that God was initially, uh, as I said, for his reasons, initially Hiding his presence, and then he made himself known. So, again, as I argued in that sermon, I don't think it was her eyes filled with tears. I think it was the same reason why Christ on the Emmaus Road uh, hid his full identity. But clearly, uh, they knew it was Jesus on the beach in John 21. They knew it was Jesus on the first Sunday resurrection night, eight days later, a week later, they knew it was the Lord Jesus. His body was definitely different and I would say, again, it's even different in heaven, and I think the Lord allows us to see the full expression, I didn't cover this on Sunday, the full expression of his glorified body in heaven, because we'll be able to uh, digest that, because we will be in resurrected bodies. They were not, obviously, in the first century when he was still walking on the earth for 40-some years, but his body is um, so magnificent, it's Uh, Some strong parallels in Revelation 1 between the body of Christ in heaven and the Ancient of Days. The Father, his body is so brilliant. It lights heaven. There'll be no need for the sun or the moon or the stars and and so on. But but we'll be able to somehow absorb that truth in a glorified body that we certainly could not in these uh, finite bodies that they met Christ in when he was resurrected. But that's a good question in your thinking, Bert, and I appreciate that. That's great. Let's go to the next caller. They're calling from where?
0: Looks like uh, Hilton Head, All South right. Carolina, Pastor Carl. Good All morning, right. Martin. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go
1: ahead, Martin. Martin's breaking up. We can't hear him, so maybe you want to call back. Let's go to the next caller.
0: All right. uh, Well, we have a question from Keith out of Kentucky. Okay. Uh, He writes, My question is in the book of Revelation. When do the two witnesses appear? In the first three and a half years of the tribulation or the second three and a half years? Also, are there 144,000 starting their ministry in the first three and a half years as well?
1: Yeah, so the 144,000 clearly are in the first half of the tribulation. No one really debates the timing on the ministry, of the 144,000, because, again, what you see happening throughout the revelation is very often he will, and this is very typical of Jewish writing, and John is a Jew who's penning this through his personality, through his language, uh, vocabulary that is different from Luke or other writers of the New Testament, and uh, through his personality, the Spirit of God uh, empowers him to write in. He uses a Jewish writing style um, where sometimes an event is told and then we then it goes back and it reflects on uh, why it is told the way it was. You see that, for instance, in the Table of the Nations, Genesis 10. You say, well, where did the Table of the Nations come from? How do we get all these nations in Genesis 10? Well, the explanation comes in Genesis 11. And so you see, for instance, in um, the uh, book of Revelation, these seals that are taking place. And then he goes back in Revelation 6 and he pauses and says, well, let me tell you what was going on during the time of the seal judgments, which cover a span of three and a half years. And he describes these um, 144,000 Jewish men who cannot be killed. And uh, these are Jewish men who are like missionaries and evangelists and they will accomplish what has not been accomplished during the age of the church. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world, and then the end shall come. How is that going to happen? Well, it is partially happening today through the faithfulness of Christians who take the command of Christ seriously and go into all the world, and they're they're trying to share in their neighborhoods and their places of work, and they're supporting missionaries and other endeavors as a community of believers in their local assembly, and that that's important, but it ultimately will be fulfilled. Some people say, well, you know, Jesus can't come back yet because the gospel hasn't gone out to the whole world. Well, that's a second coming event, and that's what Matthew 24 is dealing with. So it's true, he can't come back for the second coming until the gospel goes out to the whole world, but it will go out to the whole world during the tribulation period. A rapture is a non-prophetically driven event that could happen today this gospel of the kingdom 2414 shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end shall come how's that going to happen through these one hundred forty-four thousand jewish men who are going to preach the gospel so they are functioning in the first half and it's not by accident that the next verse 2415 Describes the midpoint. How do we know it's the midpoint? Because Daniel nine definitively tells us the midpoint of this seven year period is when the antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple and he um, commits the abomination of desolation. When that event happens, whoa, look out! Things are going to really change. Now, the two witnesses. There are some good people who see them. Their ministry in the second half. I don't. I think what we're seeing here is, again, a reflection of um, God will sometimes look back, sometimes he'll look forward. And so there's this uh, chapter seven where he's describing what's happening. He, he begins to tell us about the trumpet judgments and and what is happening. And, and then he, he tells us, and some people, by the way, put the trumpets in the first half. I don't. I, I think they fall logically in the second half but you have these two witnesses and who they are well that's another sermon in of itself if you were to ask me to be dogmatic i'd say moses and elijah because we know elijah is going to come again jesus said he would and he will come in this time frame of the great and terrible day of the lord and moses as well and and they minister these two witnesses for three and a half years and then what follows is this beast coming up from the sea well, the Antichrist has been ruling and reigning when he started the covenant with Israel. But what is different, beginning in chapter 13, is it appears at this point he's inhabited by Satan himself. And so in the truest sense, he becomes the son of perdition. He is miraculously healed and from the midpoint on, and no one debates that. You have uh, the mark of the beast that people will take. So in the first half of the tribulation, you have a one-world religion that's a conglomerate of all the religions of the world. And at the midpoint, it becomes definitive. You can only worship the Antichrist, and there's no other right religion. So you've got this going back and forth. I wouldn't shed blood over it if you meet a pastor who puts the two witnesses in the second half. Uh, I just don't see that in my, I would argue, that they fall in the first half. You might want to listen to my series on Revelation. Anyway, we're out of time. Great questions today. If you have a question, you can call Community Bible Church, really the radio station at 843-525-1859. There's a message that you can hit, and you can give your question in 30 seconds or less, or you can call us live, God willing, next week. Thanks for being with us today. Walk with Christ we